1: Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is uh, such a delight to bring back to the show uh, one of my dearest and longest uh, term friends. He is our favorite presidential historian. He is Dr. Tevi Troy. He has—I love this, too. I love when we get guests who have op-eds the same day. He had an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal. When presidents lose their temper, among many other things, he is the author of several books, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, which is just a a great read and great history, and now available on audio, too. Tevi, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix.
2: Thanks for having me. It is such a pleasure to be on with the uh, longest-serving radio host in the Arizona area.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Tevi. Um, All right, let's talk temper, and then I want to talk a little bit uh, intellectual history, too, with you. I've been kind of Really moved by Milan Milan Kundera's passing and uh, what he taught and what I hope we don't forget from what he taught. So maybe a little bit of both. Are you you good with that?
2: Amen. Let's do it.
1: Let's do it. When presidents lose their temper. So the story comes out in Politico— identifying the fact that uh, old friendly Joe, uh, lunch pail Joe, whatever they called him, middle class, what was it, blue collar Joe, ain't so, uh, maybe maybe talks a lot more like Archie Bunker as a blue collar than than the kind of image he was trying to portray as just a nice, decent, uh, avuncular man. And
2: Except Archie uh, yeah. underneath his rough and rugged yeah.
1: exterior yeah. article. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he and he paid and carried the freight of four people who were eating under yeah, his right. house. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> as Adam Carolla likes to point out. Um, so there's that part, and I want to talk to you about Temper. Before we get to Temper and Presidents, as you wrote in the Wall Street Journal though, Tevi, there's been a couple now, maybe three or four major articles. We'll add Maureen Dowd to it in the New York Times kind of exposing an underside or an underbelly of Joe Biden. Are we to make anything of this? Do you pick up any any threads and think that they're they're worth collecting into a bundle? Any sticks here collect into a bundle? I, I do think there are yeah.
2: some, some threads here, but I think there are different things going on. Okay. There's a lot of speculation that this Axios piece about the temper was a planned leak. Obviously, the, some reporters do know about his nasty temper, and he he deploys it on reporters, as, as you well know. Oh, yeah. But that the idea was that it was a planned leak to show that he's not kind of doddering old Joe, but kind of on top of things, uh-huh. like whoever Phil Hartman and uh-huh. Reagan uh-huh. On Saturday <laughs> Live, where he's just kind of the tough guy behind the scenes yeah. who really can yell at people yeah. <laughs> to get things done. But that the leak may have backfired uh-huh. in that there's been so much blowback on his anger. It's so much of a sense that, hey, this is not the kind of nice, kindly Uncle Joe that we signed up for, that, that it didn't work out well. At the same time, you do hear a lot of these other stories that you referenced. And I think that those other stories may be planted by perhaps other campaigns waiting in the wings. I don't want to say anything, but maybe the guy's name rhymes with Babin uh, Boosom yeah. <laughs> in California. <laughs> and um, I think there's a chance that, uh, that there are other people waiting in the wings who really want to see Biden kind of topple um, so that it's safe to go after them Because right now, if you were to go after Biden in the Democratic primaries, that would be political disaster for you, and you'd be seen as someone who's kind of enabling Trump and bringing Trump back. So what they want is, with no fingerprints, to show that maybe there are some problems with Biden, which is something that we have all noticed, mm-hmm. and it's like the emperor's new clothes we can't talk about, and in doing so, and this Maureen Dowd piece really did uh, touch a nerve that talked about, uh, you know, what kind of person doesn't acknowledge his own grandchild? Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then perhaps there's an opportunity for someone like Governor Newsom to step in.
1: My uh, producer, we refer to him as young David, David Dahl, he and I like to s- sometimes speculate on air a little bit about past examples of incumbent presidents who declined run to run. You think of LBJ just because they couldn't, just they knew they knew they were un- non-viable candidates. Truman at uh, 52. Yeah, he said Truman too. In the lbj case there was a perfectly reasonable vice president in waiting in hubert humphrey uh in the truman case i think barkley was probably older than joe biden i don't know he was i don't know i think he was really old though and um and here we have a slightly different problem because i don't think anyone thinks that the current vice president would be an improvement and or more well, so there is one person who yeah.
2: thinks that, and that is the current vice president correct correct but she is alone in that
1: Correct. So it, it it kind of brings on fun histor- historical speculation. We'll get back to anger in a minute. But it does bring on a fun historical speculation about the current Robert Kennedy, whose dad kind of, what, contributed somewhat to the notion that LBJ shouldn't run again. I guess as much McCarthy as Kennedy, but right, he was part David of the mix. Yeah,
2: who had a surprisingly good showing. He did not win, but right. a surprisingly good showing in the 1968 New Hampshire primary. Right. And then... LBJ was kind of knocked for a loop, and uh, Kennedy senses uh, blood in the water, and he jumps in, and then LBJ says, I'm not running again um, in in that famous announcement.
1: But they did, as we say, have have had a—I guess Robert Kennedy Sr. was more viable than Robert Kennedy Jr. in some respects. Eugene McCarthy was more viable, but Hubert Humphrey, perfectly viable. And I don't even know how you— skip over if you're in the Democratic Party. I mean, this is the thing I cannot wrap my head around, how you skip over a vice president who checks so many boxes for the Democratic Party and was promoted as having, you know, broken through so right, many was picked, for yeah. like yeah. picked, for P- picked for those reasons. Yeah, yeah, specifically picked for those reasons to a white male from the same state, as his name might rhyme with Babin Gruesome or whatever you say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That That is a tough trick. That is a tough trick to pull off, I would think.
2: So I, I agree. I think it'll be a challenge for the Democrats. Um, I, I think they they face a lot of challenges. I mean, Joe Biden is probably the one person who is best situated within the party right now to beat Trump, but it might not be Trump. And I think any of the younger candidates I think, would beat Biden just because of the contrast in ages. And then if you don't go with Biden, then there's a holy bloodletting within the Democratic Party over who comes next. So I think the Democrats have a real problem in their hands. The only thing, the only scenario that works for them is if you have the scenario that everybody does not want, which is 30 percent of the American people don't want to see Trump Biden again. And that is what it's shaping up to be. And that may be the best scenario for Biden.
1: Did I hear you right? Do you did you say you think Joe Biden has a better chance of beating a Republican uh, than even Gavin Newsom, you think?
2: No, I think Biden has a better chance of beating Trump. Uh-huh. But I think any younger candidate from whichever party can be one of these two older people. Yeah. So I think I think if we have a. 40 something year old DeSantis against Biden I think DeSantis would win and I think if we have a 50 something year old Newsom against Trump I, I think see. Newsom would win I see I, I think saying, the American yeah. people when there's such a stark contrast yeah I think the American people would go for the younger more vibrant candidate Interesting. And, it's, and it's different than the Ronald Reagan race where you know Reagan wasn't quite as old as these two folks right. I mean, he was in his late 60s yeah 69 I think yeah right, right. yeah um, and it's was just different I mean he was much more vibrant and with it than Joe Biden is. And, uh, you know, certainly not as uh, overweight as Trump is, and, uh, he, you know, they, they were making jokes about his age, but he was able to kind of swap those jokes away with this famous line in the 1984 debate that he will not exploit for political purposes the youth and inexperience of his, his opponent, Walter Mondale. Mondale was 56 at the time, <laughs> and Mondale knew at that moment that was he had a, lost the race yeah. because Reagan had given that comment so deftly and really kind of destroyed the age argument at that moment.
1: Let's thank you for that analysis. And let's talk a little bit more about your anger column. And now that we're on Reagan, let's talk about that. That that debate – this is a good springboard for it – that second debate where Reagan made his comeback and, and, and finished off Walter Mondale with that line came on the heels of a very bad debate, a first – port, a bad debate performance. There must have been some anger there. I mean, presidents—you uh, point out one particular example. Presidents must really flash their anger in these debate prep sessions more than just oh. what transpired yeah, between this is a Trump great story, and actually. yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: and we didn't even pre, uh, pre-discuss it, but in those initial debate prep sessions, David Stockman yeah. is who is the OMB director, young yeah. former congressman, very smart guy, and he is playing. Mondale, and he is just ripping Reagan apart, and Reagan can't handle it because yeah. uh, <laughs> Stockman is doing so well. And there was some speculation among the Reagan aides that Stockman enjoyed showing up president in front of yeah. other people a little too much. Yeah. And at one point, Reagan even yells at him, "Just shut up!" Wow. He just couldn't take it because Stockman was so brutal on him. And uh, um, Roger Ailes comes in to see these debate prep sessions. And he says, "Wait a minute, this is not working." Yeah. And so he kind of takes over the debate prep sessions, he kicks everyone out of the room, and he plays what he calls Pepper with Reagan, where he just kind of asks general questions. let's talk about themes, I don't want you to memorize all these statistics about the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, just let's talk about themes. And in those conversations, AL said to him, hey, you know, we are going to have this age issue, and Reagan kind of got a twinkle in his eyes He said, I think I have an idea for that.
1: Okay. All right. Let me let me take a quick break on that, Tevi, and come back with you. I also wanted to ask you about your thesis about these debate sessions where incumbent presidents are so unused to being challenged, right? Because they've spent, what, three and a half, four years not being challenged. All right, right. right. Yeah, a... let me pick up on that with you on the other side. Tevi Troy is our guest. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leapson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is my guest. T-R-O-Y is his last name. He is author, most recently, of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. He's a presidential historian. He's a cultural historian. And one of those great books, um, uh, Blending the Two, is his uh, slightly earlier book, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. Uh, Tevi Troy, thanks. Debate prep, always fun to talk about. Presidents tend to lose it a little bit. Um, either they're cool or they're sang or something because they're not used, at least once they've already become the incumbent, they're not used to being talked to that way. That was a thesis you, 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 you gave to me. I'll let you put it out there because you'll, it's your thesis and better than I can say it. But also, any other fun and surprise debate? Prep sparring partners in the annals that you've looked at. David Stockman, I had forgotten. Prepped Reagan. I'd forgotten about Chris Christie prepping Trump. Any other fun
2: ones that you can think of? Oh, well? Rob Portman is a great one. Yeah. Who he prepped both um, Bush in 2000 for Al Gore. Yeah. And he prepped uh, Cheney in 2004 for um, John
1: Edwards. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And
2: I was in those prep sessions. I was debate uh, prep for Bush and Cheney. You know, for and Rob Portman was just terrific. He didn't have the southern accent, but he took on every affect of John Edwards and, and the cadences of Edwards, and he, he was amazing. Wow. And, uh, and then obviously, he went on to a successful career as Senator. But uh, in the 2000s debate prep, um, Portman goes up to Bush and gets in his face, uh-huh. which, if you recall, is something that Gore actually did.
1: Yeah, want to buy some wood face. or something like that yeah. was Bush's And, and he goes yeah.
2: right up to him. Yeah. And Bush says he's not going to do that and kind of jokes and kisses Portman on the head mm. in a joking way. But Portman stood his ground and he said, yeah, he will. I've seen him do it. Wow. And so Bush was ready wow. when Gore did it, when Gar kind of stalked him and got in his face. Gore was a big guy trying to be in- intimidating and Bush did this kind of head check yeah. at That devastated Gore and can completely ruin the move. But I don't think he would have been able to come up with it on the fly without that press report. Fun. Say
1: something about uh, presidents and. presidents and uh you know not being used to talk to being used to being talked to that way in a debate you saw it you see it live too not just in debate prep you see it at those first debates right on tv and
2: and people forget that the first debate was not till 1960 neither of those people were incumbents kennedy and nixon right then you don't have another debate till 1976 that's the first debate where an incumbent president debates and if you recall it was a disastrous performance for Gary Ford, right. who said that Poland was not under Soviet domination, <laughs> right. which was news to the Poles,
1: And he defended and, uh, it weirdly to the end of his life. It was so he odd he wouldn't let praying. go of and, it. And yeah.
2: in the debate prep session, Kissinger and his, Kissinger's people told him to say that. <laughs> so uh, he didn't come up with it by himself, but it was a terrible, terrible line and big mistake. Then you look at 1980, yeah. and uh, Jimmy Carter is the incumbent president. And what does uh, Reagan do to him? He says, "There you go again" with uh, Carter's attacks on on, on uh, Reagan's position on Medicare, Medicaid, and. There was this sense from Carter that I don't have to take this guy that seriously. I can just, you know, cite these things that he said in the 1960s and he won't be there, you know, giving much difficulty. And Reagan, you know, fought back and Reagan did a good job. Then in 84, Reagan is the incumbent, and we already talked about the the troubles he had with the first debate against Mondale. He did write the ship in the second debate. Then you go to 1992, the incumbent is George H.W. Bush, and he does a terrible job. Remember that debate where he looks at his watch? He looks like he's bored. He couldn't wait to get out of there. So you do have this uh, experience. The the, the one guy I got to give credit to, the one incumbent president who didn't do a bad job in his debate was 1996. Bill Clinton, right. who was just a great debater, and uh, you know he was kind of a, a different animal, and I, I think he he had it over Bob Dole no matter what Dole was going to do. Uh, but then, just quickly, let's go to 2004 yeah. when Bush is in his first debate against John Kerry, and I was on the debate prep team, Bush did not put in the work before that first debate that he should have. I know Dick Cheney, who I was also on the debate team before, did do it, and he did multiple prep sessions, including those with Rob Portman that I mentioned, and he was readier for his first debate than uh, than, than Bush was. And then you look at Obama, the great boss at Obama in 2012, he wasn't ready nope. for his debate with Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney wiped the floor with him in that 2012 debate. One of the biggest wipeouts I've ever seen in presidential debate in history. Uh, Romney did so well in that debate. Unfortunately, he didn't follow up, and, uh, and you know, Obama obviously won the race. And then he looked to 2020, and I told the story in the Wall Street Journal piece that Chris Christie got under Trump's skin so much yeah. that Trump was so angry in the debate itself that he kind of lost his cool against Biden and gave, I think, one of the most disastrous debate performances. And I think if there actually are debates in 2024, (laughs) and Joe Biden is on the stage in his uh, 82-year-old senescence, I think, once again, we would see a poor debate performance from an incumbent president.
1: 82-year-old senescence. This is why we (laughs) keep you around, Tevi Choi. You mentioned Clinton. Um, I don't remember if you mentioned him in your op-ed, but I seem to recall being told stories that he had a temper too, maybe threw his glasses at people. Maybe I'm misremembering, but Clinton had a temper of sorts, no? Or yes?
2: He did. And the the idea of my Wall Street Journal piece was not to recount every instance no, of presidential of right. temper. Right. Uh, because, you know, I've done pieces like that where I go through each president yeah. and say where they are on drugs or where they are on you yeah. know, dealing with the press, whatever. But on this piece, I was specifically trying to say hinged moments in history that shifted on presidential anger. Right. And so I've tried to take a di- slightly different approach. And these were things where events changed as a result of the president's anger. And so while I could give lots of examples of Clinton being mad or, uh, or you know, almost any president going back to Washington being mad, they didn't necessarily affect history in the way that the five examples I did in the Wall Street Journal piece did.
1: The Nixon one is so interesting to me. I remember when I was working with Bill on uh, Last Best Hope, um one of the things that came, you know, I, everyone knew it, but I think one of the things we put directly, as you wrote here as well, was the view of Nixon dramatically changed once those tapes came out. That was just something he could not sustain once people had a chance that the, the release of those tapes was his end. Right.
2: Oh, yeah. People were shocked. What they heard on Nixon was ripping on people. There was um, there was anti-Semitic, homophobic stuff on there. There was uh, cursing. I mean, there there were just terrible, terrible things that he was saying in the privacy of his own office that he never thought anybody else would hear. That right. doesn't defend it. Right. But the American people heard something very different than what they thought the, their president was, and he really was never able to get over it. And
1: an America that he depended on, or a part of America that he depended on, when you go back and look at his 68 speech and things like that, you know, the middle America, right? The That's non-shouters, the, the decent people, right?
2: Right. And he did not come across in those days as no. a decent person. No, and that, that was his problem,
1: yeah, and that and that was and that was the career ender right there. There might have been another history. Doesn't reveal its alternatives is one of my favorite quotes from AJP Taylor, but uh, certainly those tapes. Let's talk. Well, as long as
2: you are AJP Taylor, can I give my favorite AJP? Taylor yes, the please. The book that lies within the hearts of every man should usually stay there.
1: Uh, that that is a great line. Isn't that brilliant? do it again before we go to break.
2: The book that lies in the heart of every man should usually stay there. <laughs>
1: So, when (laughs) okay, let's talk about hearts and minds and communism and the passing and the lessons we should draw from the passing of these people who lived through communism and lived to tell the tale and tried to warn the West about something because we lost a giant, I think a giant, Milan Kundera, uh, over the last day or so. And I, I was, I was, um, I was surprised to see such a nice write-up from the AP, to be honest with you, but I haven't seen very many others, and I think, you know, for those of us that are concerned about that age-old question, the survival of the West, there's something important not to be forgotten about these authors. Can we talk about those when we come back, Tevy? Absolutely. Thanks, brother. Tevi Troy is our guest, uh, author of many, many books. Most recently, Fight House, rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Just a great presidential history,
2: as he is a great presidential historian. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Tevi Troy
1: is my guest, presidential and cultural historian, uh, former uh, deputy secretary, of Health and Human Services, a resume that would take the rest of the uh, show to to recite, uh, but dear friend to me and uh, this audience and this show. Tevi, um, man of letters, man of books, I'm... Uh, I think I think, it, I think I credit you with telling me if there was one book I had to read, read when I had not some many, many years ago, it was – I think it was you who told me The Must Read Was Witness by Whitaker Chambers, which I've since reread a few times and every time find something new. It's just one of the most eloquent. Elegantly written books. The man had a gift. I could see why Buckley seized on him. There was a gift there, and a lot of warnings. That, yeah, go Henry ahead. Lucy, yeah,
2: Henry uh, Luce, the writer and founder of Time Magazine, yeah. also greatly admired uh, Whitaker Chambers and his skill.
1: Yeah, and just it, we could talk about the importance of it. I, the occasion for this is the passing of Milan Kundera, who, in his book on laughter and forgetting, warned against uh, warned the West against what. How, how countries fail, how f- countries can actually disappear, um, sometimes through military, but sometimes through ideology, yes?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Kundera's uh, works were so important because, obviously, he was Czech and from a country that has a, a storied history and some great artists and writers, and he basically talked about, in a fictional way, through, through his novels, he made manifest the repressive nature of the Communist Museum, mm-hmm. whether he was talking about the, the, in the joke how, you know, how humor can destroy lives, or when he was talking about an unbearable lightness of being how people are seeking sexual expression where they they can't find any other forms of expression. uh, it It was really a brilliant takedown of the communist regime in a way that wasn't kind of heavy-handed and was very hard for them to censor in a way. And these books had widespread appeal and people just saw what the problems of communism were. And so it was very powerful and we, I think we lost a great man.
0: This
1: concept, you heard this from you hear this from others. Europeans, I mean Whitaker Chambers may have been one of the first Americans to get it so right, but you hear these things from Europeans who know communism quite well, this notion of the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory. You got that kind of thing from Jean, Fra, Jean Francois Ravel in his um, in his book How Democracies Perish. But there was a whole literature uh, in the forties and fifties, really, that's been forgotten that warned the West too. Right beyond beyond uh, beyond. Well, Kundera came later, but even pre even preceding Chambers. Yes.
2: Yeah. What about Arthur Kessler? Or yeah. Darkest at Noon. Yeah. Uh, another powerful or book. the or, so, or the
1: god that failed which i think kessler was in if i'm not mistaken
2: yeah so yep. um look, you know, communism uh had great promise yeah uh but it also uh, brought about great repression and great tragedy and so uh a good book on this is uh josh moravchik's heaven on earth which uh-huh. is kind of a history uh-huh. of uh, of socialism the rise and fall of it I and mean, he goes about how it came about how it was written about how it just uh, caught on but also it's a uh, terrible depredations and what it did to the people who were under its, its cruel uh, grip. So, uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a very sad history because look, man wants things to be better. Man wants some kind of utopia, uh, but the utopia of communism is a failed one and it is one that brings only repression with it. And that's a, you know we, we were talking a little bit before about um, uh, books that kind of highlighted it. And a book that was so powerful for me was The Road to Serfdom. Yeah. Uh, where it just talked about how if you are going to impose some kind of socialism, you have to do it at the point of the barrel of a gun. Mm -hmm. And it's the only way you can get someone to give up what they have for no other reason than you decide it should be redistributed to someone else. And that once you have that, then the point of the gun is the way that this thing happens, and then you lose freedom. Because once you start, there's no end to the limitations on freedom that will be imposed by a socialist and a communist system.
1: Do you think perhaps Frederick Hayek in that book underestimated the power of ideology in the way that Kundera or Kessler writes about it, that it can be done through through the revisions of history? It can be done—I mean, I suppose one looks at the Cultural Revolution in China. Okay, so Mao got there by the point of a barrel of a gun. I get that. But there is there there has been this long term concern about the West, whether it's Leo Strauss, whether it's Hannah Arendt, whether it's the kind of stuff Kundera was writing about, that the ideology can be noxious enough to 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 to, to, to uh, bewitch a people uh, slowly and surely. And I wonder if you might think about that with me. On the this was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up. If we might just think a little bit about that, along with this thesis. You tell me if you agree with it or not that the esteem communism has in this country today is higher than it was at any other time since the end of World War II. I'd love your thought on that as well. Dr. Tevi Choi, let me take the break with those pregnant questions and teases for the audience and let you uh, straighten me out on all of that. Tevi Troy, among other things, is a presidential and cultural historian. He is also the director of presidential, of the Presidential Leadership Initiative at the Bipartisan Policy Center, Fight House Rivalries in the White House from Truman to T-
2: Trump, his most recent book, a great one. Ian, I'll be right back.
0: Dr.
1: Tevi Troy is my guest, presidential and cultural historian. Tevi, my young David, during the break said, "You guys are good together." I said, "Well, we try. You know, we're trying to produce something decent here. We're not, we're not aiming low." And as I always said, I can talk to you for hours about anything. So thank you for your time with us this afternoon, Tevi. Of course. The esteem. Okay.
2: Yeah. I have the first, my first radio appearance on your show
1: under his regime say that again do that again tevi his
2: regime under the new david
1: regime. oh this is your first shot with david under the new uh under the new regime okay um the esteem of communism in this country uh it seems to me it's higher now than it has ever been i tell the friend uh i tell the story of a friend who once said as a young kid to their parents can i marry a uh can I marry a person who's black? Of course. Can I marry a person who's Chinese? Of course. Uh, can I marry a person who's Jewish? Of course. The only person the parents said you can't marry is a communist. You, you won't hear that anymore. That was that kind of represented a time in America, didn't it? And now you have um, pions and tributes to communism uh, from places I never thought I'd see. I, that's my view.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think there's a couple of things going on. Uh, first is uh, we are... 30-plus years removed from the end of the Cold War. And for 40-odd years of the Cold War, the American people were focused on the evils of communism and the dangers of communism and the depredations of communism. And without that, you have a whole new generation for whom the end of the Cold War is further away to them than World War II was to us growing up. That's right. So they, they just have no recollection of the horrors of what we were trying to fight off. But the second thing, and this is a more pernicious point, um, is that uh, the culture has shifted. So first, within the universities, uh, there there's no great cost to saying you're a communist on a college campus. To say you're a Republican or a conservative or a free marketer or, or, God forbid, in favor of free speech, is hugely uh, costly right. to someone on college campus. Right. And then at the same time, in the 80s, we knew the KGB were bad guys because we would regularly see movies where right. the KGB was portrayed as a bad guy. Right. And today,
1: or TV Chinese shows, are, by the way, movies and TV shows. And yeah, books.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but today, communist China prevents Hollywood, and you know, I'm not giving Hollywood uh, credit here or enough blame because uh, Hollywood a uh, coward and a coward They, they bow the to public. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. But uh, but communist China will not allow major studios to produce any movie that shows them in a critical light. Um, and the pain of not having any of their movies across the entire studios be released in China. And it's obviously a large market with a billion people. So the, while, while we saw growing up that the KGB agents were the bad guys, today the Chinese state security services, which are uh, evil and cruel and torture people and do all kinds of terrible things, uh, they are generally and frequently portrayed in Hollywood movies as the good guys.
1: Yeah. That's interesting.
2: And I saw a movie recently. Yeah. I don't even want to give the movie the credit of uh, telling you this name. But in this movie, the Chinese state security services help this team of American and uh, British agents out, while the CIA agent is the corrupt person who's that's really right. secretly the bad guy. That's,
1: that's that.
2: that uh, is the message that the American people are getting, and that makes a difference.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, the Americans are now the bad the bad guys in movies that are made in America and the enemies are the good guys. That is that is a that is a complete reversal of what we knew in the 1980s. And it happens routinely. Or 70s. Oh. Yeah, and it happens routinely. I wonder um Tevi, you said something interesting about the Frederick Hayek thesis of communism and power or communism coming from the end of a barrel of a gun or tip of a spear. I wonder if that's why you see the attachment to socialism, this prefix democratic socialism, as a way to kind of detoxify it a little bit. I wonder. I wonder.
2: Of course. They they try and make it sound like uh, the people are choosing to have this imposed upon them and that it's okay, but you know, the, the, uh, the restrictions on freedom are still restrictions on freedom, and we should still fight against restrictions on freedom uh, whether you give it a, a nice monitor or not. And so, yeah, they're always trying to do a, you know, <laughs> communism with a human face, if it, if it will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the basic idea of so- socialism, as Hayek powerfully explained, and I remember reading it as a 19 year old, and it just was ingrained in me immediately upon reading it, this is how you do this kind of income redistribution, and you do it at the tip of the spear, and there's the only way it can be done, and it can never be done in the context of freedom.
1: I have to tell a story on you. I once, <laughs> I didn't like summer camp. <laughs> I once asked hey, you about, You hated summer. I asked you why you hated it. You said because I love freedom. <laughs> these little, these little Maoist camps <laughs> that were designed based on some kind of notion of socialism that we were used to or forced into as kids by our parents who needed a little break from us, I suppose. But, but Tevi, do you do you see the ideological? invasion or or maybe adoption when you see some of the practices not just from Hollywood as you design as you detailed but the the, this this totally new idea that the government has the right to censor, and the government has a First Amendment right, and the government has the obligation to prevent misinformation uh, in the American uh, di- dialogue. It, 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 boy, it reeks, it just reeks of Stalinism and Maoism.
2: It's not really one of the most disturbing things I've seen in my life, I've this idea that the American people, especially the left, are against free speech. Yeah the free speech movement at Berkeley was this protest movement in favor of the ability to speak, yeah. to approach the Vietnam War. Yeah. And we, as Americans, at one point, we all agreed yep. on free speech. In fact, it was uh, it was seen that the right was less for free speech. And the American Civil Liberties Union was, was designed to protect civil liberties and protect freedom, and protect specifically for freedom of speech. And they are completely not on board with that anymore. Their whole idea is about whatever left-wing ideology is, that's what we're on board with. We don't endorse free speech anymore. And I find it incredibly disturbing.
1: Did you say, did I, I, I may have missed how you cast it. Did you say it's one of the w- most disturbing things you've seen of late? Did I hear you put it that high so that, in that yeah, superlative? I mean,
2: yeah. yeah. The First Amendment is first for a reason, right? Yeah. Freedom of speech is at the basis of our freedom and our ability to govern ourselves. And if you take that away, then suddenly all, all the other freedoms go away as well. And the idea that if you go on college campuses and ask kids if they're in favor of free speech they 'll dismiss you as some kind of right wing zealot that's right, usually disturbed
1: it 's almost as bad as being patriotic, but you'd yeah. be you'd you'd be out of a job and i'd be out of a job if we didn't have this tevi troy you're such a good friend, and uh, thank you for spe- such a good scholar. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us, brother happy to do it Tevi Troy he is the author of many books, most recently Fight House Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump.
2: I'll be back with a closing thought.
1: Bank failures, possible recession, durable inflation, stock market volatility. Where do you go to invest? Why Refi has an answer for you. Them. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal. if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, and they're headquartered here. They're local. I and they encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101 I have, and I can tell you you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust and like them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi Why Re- Why is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Just log on to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com or call 888-Y-REFI-34, 34. 888-Y-REFI-34. 34. I was revisiting for my interview with Tevi um, that book, an old book of uh, four or five great authors. Who were communists and then turned against communism? Um, the, the book was called *The God That Failed*. I think there's probably been reissues, reissuances of it. You could probably get it uh, a more a more modern or updated version. But Arthur Kessler writes in the in his essay, "Devotion to pure utopia and revolt against a polluted society are thus the two poles which provide the tension." of all militant creeds devotion to pure utopia and revolt against a polluted society that is what i worry about here and unlike the summary we heard about hayek's point of view i think we have learned it doesn't have to come from the barrel of a gun not in an open society it doesn't which was the concern in the 50s in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s. The concern was a fifth column. And now by dint of free elections, by putting merely the word Democrat or Democratic in front of the word socialism, we detoxify it at the election level. And by implanting, as I say, tributes and glosses to Lenin and Marx at such organizations such outlets as the Cartoon Network or Teen Vogue, or as Teddy was pointing out in Hollywood, you can pretty rapidly get to the concept that there can be a utopia, which by definition is a place that doesn't exist, and you can get the sense that we are living in a polluted society here, that we are a sick society. We are not a polluted society, and we are not a sick society. Don't let anyone tell you that. But we better quickly, and rather quickly... Pull up our socks and find what we need to find to find that capacity of civic renewal, political renewal, and social renewal here, because we're running out of road. Folks, until tomorrow, God bless you all. David, thank you. I am Seth Liebson, and class is
0: dismissed.